0: Hi, my name is David, and I beat the often Path by making coolers out of coconuts.
1: Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this show, we showcase unusual success stories to help us get a bit of a bigger perspective on our lives and careers, and to come up with some outside the box ideas on how to live our lives better. My guest today is David Cutler, the founder of Fortuna Cools, an innovative startup that's going to completely change the way you think about coolers. Okay, okay, you might not be thinking about coolers on a daily basis, per se, but if you want to head out and bring some drinks with you on a hot summer day, odds are good that you're putting your drinks into a plastic cooler. But what if there was a better way of both keeping things cool and, you know, not creating throwaway products that will never decompose, forever polluting our oceans and land such that future generations will likely only know us as the plastic-era people? Too far? You love plastic that much, huh? (laughs) Okay. Well, I'm deeply inspired by David's story. His optimism and determination led him to found a company that will have a profound impact on how foods are kept cool around the world, starting in the Philippines and Southeast Asia on an industrial and consumer scale. So here's David Cutler, the founder of Fortuna Cool. Coolers out of coconuts. That's going to be fun, I can tell already. Well, welcome to the show, David. Thank you so much for joining me
0: thanks a lot Russ I'm excited for this
1: so as you might know I seek out these unusual success stories people who have done crazy things and coolers out of coconuts sounds like something from Gilligan's Island or one of those shows how on earth did you come up with the idea for making coolers out of coconuts
0: yeah um I feel like I get to live Gilligan's Island uh in in the best possible way uh for for many of my days so um that's that's a very apt uh comparison um (laughs) Yeah, so it it started uh, several years ago, back in graduate school. Uh, as as many good things do, uh, this was this was a student project before it was a company, and we started this thing in a design school class called Design for Extreme Affordability, where we were partnered, um, you know, very fortunately with an NGO in the Philippines called Rare, and we were introduced to fishing communities that were struggling with cold chains, with how to keep their fish fresh from the time they were in the middle of the ocean catching uh, big fish, putting them in the, in the bow of their boat, and trying to deliver them to markets in good condition, in top quality. And uh, you know their ice chests that they had to work with were exclusively Styrofoam. And the NGO Rare and this fishing community um, had been struggling for a long time with how do we deliver better quality products and how do we at the same time um, give our fishermen and give all of these uh, rural communities in Southeast Asia alternative livelihoods um, and, and better opportunities um, for, for the future. And this was, this was a lot to bite off. We were, we were students at the time um, and very very humble students at that, but we had some, some great partners uh, in the Philippines who really showed us sort of the roots of these problems um, introduced us to a lot of of people who would become uh, collaborators and partners in, in the business uh, years later. But essentially, what we figured out was that styrofoam, um, aside from being kind of a, an environmental hazard, is also just not a particularly great insulation. Um, It has the tendency to break all the time. So fishermen were constantly replacing it. Uh, It's very fragile. It doesn't even insulate particularly well. And really, the only thing that styrofoam has going for it, the reason that it is so popular in Southeast Asia, the reason it has hung on um, in the US and around the world is that it is so cheap. Um, It's kind of like the age-old issue with plastics, um, even when they're not the perfect tool for the job it's just really hard to compete on price. And so this was sort of the, the kernel that um, we started working on in grad school. How can we find a product or a material that can do a better job of insulating than styrofoam, and that can also compete on price with styrofoam? And uh, I, will, I will kind of like stop this long story before it gets out of hand, but the, the materials that we started looking at pretty, pretty quickly was broadly agricultural waste. So somebody else's trash is very cheap. And if we could unlock some sort of value in that waste, you know, maybe there's some potential there. And so in the Philippines, it doesn't take long to come across these piles of leftover coconut husks. Um, they produce about 16 billion coconuts per year in the Philippines alone and billions more across, uh, across Asia and around the equator. And no one is really doing anything with all of this amazing raw material. And it just so happens that the fiber of coconut husks is performing this insulation job already when the coconuts are on the tree. And it became our sort of life's work to take this natural insulation and transform it into a product and a material that could replace styrofoam and do so cheaply and scalably.
1: Amazing. So this all began, it was Stanford, right?
0: That's right. Yeah, the, the design school at, at Stanford.
1: Okay, got it. So you're not a very smart guy, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Graduate school of Stanford. Who believe cares? it or not, Stanford Stanford
0: is not a good place to, to get a big head. Uh the, the the thing people don't maybe realize about Stanford is that you for for as long as you're there, you feel like the dumbest person in every single room. Um, <laughs> right. And so believe it or not, um I don't know, I don't know how it, it uh so many so many people emerge with so much confidence, but for me, um, I just learned uh, how much brilliance there is in the world. And uh, it became my my kind of calling card to just uh, pick and choose the the smartest people in the room because it, it is never me. And it certainly wasn't at Stanford either.
1: <laughs> hey, you just tapped into my business model. That's exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> That's literally what this is all about. Um, So Stanford sustainability, so this was kind of hoisted upon you. They said, we've already got these connections. You're going to try to design for affordability. Was this something that you were interested in before going to Stanford? Were you always interested in sustainability, broadly speaking, or entrepreneurship or anything like that? I was absolutely interested in in both, but I wouldn't say that
0: I had a deep professional background in either. I had worked for a small startup um, in India, and uh, it was not... Sustainability related. I'd also worked for a, a big and amazing philanthropy called the Open Society Foundations, where we were supporting um, a range of different NGOs and issues uh, around the world to sort of make the make the world a better place. But um, you know, my and I worked longest at, at the philanthropy before I went back to graduate school. I think I I did go back to grad school with the idea that entrepreneurship and in particular kind of social entrepreneurship um, social impact was a really exciting model and it was um, it stands sort of in contrast to a lot of the philanthropy and nonprofit work that I had done before grad school. Um, I saw some incredible ngos but I also saw you know kind of the the frustrating side or the limits to the model of nonprofit work and i did go back to grad school with the idea that um, you know social for-profit uh models could be a really exciting um space to work in and uh and i was kind of secretly spending my time at stanford sort of looking around for for opportunities to marry um this sort of model with something that i i really believed in and sustainability Um, environmental and and social change, um, especially outside of the U.S., where I felt like the potential impact was was biggest. Um, These were things that were sort of guiding my search, but it was a very broad search, for sure.
1: Unbelievable. Yeah. I like the model, too. I'm very interested in it as well. It seems like a nice balance between our motivations as individuals and as creators and the motivations of society at large because we know that we can't get people to do things for no reason it's just impossible as much as we would like to it's hard to make change but if you create a product or something that somebody can use or they can buy and you build that in it it seems to me that it's one of our greatest chances to get out of the mess we find ourselves in do you agree with that or is that just something that we say to make ourselves feel better? As social entrepreneur type people, it's certainly something that I say. Um, I do happen to believe it
0: and agree with, with you. Uh, so that that helps to to motivate me every day. But I I totally agree with that. And I think the you know the the businesses and the business models that I think have the potential to really change the world are the ones where the impact is so deeply ingrained into whatever the core thing that the business is doing, that you simply cannot separate the positive impact from the growth of that business. And I think as much as I I respect and appreciate all the businesses that do their one thing over here and then um, and then donate or devote a certain X percentage of of their profits to you know some some environmental or social cause over there. I think it's, it's inherently a very fragile system when you're depending on kind of like the good graces or, um, sort of these sort of compromises where, uh, you extract, you know, this much natural resources, but then you sort of like out of the goodness of your heart, do this positive thing over here. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think it's just a, such a powerful, such a powerful idea to um, to have impact a positive impact um, really embedded in the core thing that you're doing, and uh, I was inspired by by a lot of companies that are are trying to do that, um, and I really think it it has to be the the way of the future because um, you know when you see businesses that are on these kind of like flywheels that are growing really quickly, um, you know if if there's a positive impact that scales linearly with the business um it just simplifies it simplifies everything and it it means that uh you know the the sort of like unlimited upside to to that sort of growth um so yeah i i, I do really believe in, in what you're saying there Russ.
1: yeah and it's, it's like when we think about robots or ai or the future of these things i think it was asimov who said those rules that we need to put into ai right don't kill a human That's there's three rules Don't do any harm to a human. Now, whether they'll follow that or not, we don't know. But it seems like when businesses don't have such rules attached to them, as they grow, they can become the opposite. They can become something very different, something very monstrous. Compare what Steve Jobs had in the early days of Apple to what Apple (laughs) is today. We're a pirate company. We're an upstart company. We're not the man. Now, they are the man, right? So it's Quick, how a business can change, and if you don't bake these things in at the start, it's pretty unlikely that they'll come in later. Right, that a company will just one day magically decide to bake them in. Would you agree with that?
0: A hundred percent. Yeah, I think it's it's not always easy at the at the very early days of a company to be considering all these externalities. Um, a lot of companies feel like they don't have the luxury of. Um, time or resources in particular, (laughs) it's usually resources to be considering these things that can feel somewhat extraneous um, to the core of the, of the business. But I just, you know, frankly, I'm only excited to work on things where, where the positive impact is at the core of the company. I think more and more entrepreneurs feel the exact same way I do more employees feel the same way I do. So it's a great motivator tool um, as well. and. And yeah, I just I, I think um, you know if if you're not thinking about these things from from day one, it's very unlikely that you can successfully um, integrate them. Like back, you know, backtrack uh, down the line when when so much stuff is in motion, and um, and and sort of integrate this stuff later. So I think I think the early days of a company are um, really important to set this stuff in stone, and you know, like. Bringing this back to to, to my company Fortuna, um, you know, there's there's always a piece of me I, I have to talk to investors. I have to talk. I have to think about the the long term future of the company. And there's always a little piece of me that feels this great sense of of relief and freedom when I think about the future because there's no way that the products that we make, whether we are acquired by some sort of you know, enormous multinational company or whether we go public someday or, you know, whether we just become a a humongous company ourselves, um, there's no way that our core impact is, is sacrificed because every single cooler that we sell, every product that we make, it means um, you know more. More farmers uh, have extra income. It means less plastic in the world, um, less CO2 being being burned by by this this waste that's instead being transformed into useful material. Um, and so it's just that that linkage is just so baked into what we do that there's simply it's like we couldn't compromise on those core values even if we wanted to. And so um, yeah, I think that gives us. Uh, you know some some great confidence in the background to be able to grow and focus on on um building and growth without constantly grappling with um you know how do we ensure that we maintain uh this all this positive you know environmental social stuff at the same time
1: i love that i think that's brilliant so before we dive into the specifics of your two company or business endeavors Tell me what what is it about styrofoam? Why is styrofoam so cheap? What have we learned about this? What about the process makes it so dang affordable? Or like you said, plastics in general, when they're not necessarily the right tool for the job, why are they always the cheapest tool for the job?
0: Yeah, it's very simple actually. Um, when you when you think about it, so plastics are quite literally the um, the leftover. Um, hydrocarbons after oil has been refined for the higher value products that, that we use oil for today. Um, Things like gasoline, um, aviation fuel. And so all of those uh, sort of products are essentially subsidizing the production of plastics. Um, That's why we take oil out of the ground is because we need to be, you know, filling up our, our cars with, with so much oil every, every day. And essentially the low grade, um, the low grade oil that is, uh, left over after that initial refinery step is the raw material that turns into plastic. And so it is such a, such a fantastic, um, kind of like a, a a sad, but fantastic example of externalities not being priced into the material on any level. So of Mm -hmm. course, you're not pricing in all the environmental harm that is caused by the general process of of oil extraction, and um, and understanding where that you know root subsidy comes from. Uh, it would not be profitable to be extracting oil out of the ground just to make plastics. So already every single plastic is subsidized on the back of of um, oil. And and secondly, and of course, you know, this this story is, is much more widely known, but the end of life of plastics and the enormous cost that plastic waste takes on the environment, um, on people's people's health, uh, those those prices are also not born um, when you see the sticker, sticker price of plastics. And instead, it's just a it's just a convenient way for oil producers to get rid of kind of the bottom of the barrel stuff that they're left over with, and that is sort of at the root of of why plastic is so cheap. And if I may, just I, this is sort of a hobby horse of mine. So, so the oh, one, one other one last thing I would say about plastics, which I again don't think I, I cannot over exaggerate this in sort of the history of of how we've gotten to this um, plastic choked world, is that for the last 60, 70 years, the amount of um, capital, the amount of academic resources, the amount of brilliance that has been focused on plastics um, and and on this sort of inorganic hydrocarbon material is absolutely staggering. Um, so for for a long time, things like material science departments in universities were synonymous with plastics researchers. Um, They were subsidized by these these big plastics companies, and there was so much focus and attention given to the world of plastics. And there have been some pretty incredible breakthroughs on the side of the plastics. I mean, it is really amazing. It's, It's an amazing material, and there have been amazing breakthroughs when it comes to plastics. But I would just say, that there are so many other amazing materials out there in the world, you know, coconut husk fiber being such a, such a small example, but you know, there are so many other materials out there that are so overlooked, understudied and underappreciated. And I think just in the last couple of years, you're starting to see more and more companies, um, more and more researchers starting to wake up Like, remember that there are these out there, there are all of these other materials out there and starting to take a a second look at that. So that's what's pretty exciting about kind of the current moment in time.
1: That is exciting. It's like what they say, the man with the hammer syndrome to the man with the hammer. Everything looks like a nail, right? To the plastics industry, everything looks like it should be solved with plastics. And yeah. it's funny how these things dictate our end choices. We're not even aware. You've got this giant corn industry in the United States. You've got a lot of dairy waste, boom, Doritos, <laughs> all these cheese-covered things. We don't realize that these are just byproducts of other industries also subsidizing something else. So it doesn't surprise me at all to learn that that is the case. Obviously, we know that oil is not very sustainable. So it's interesting. Now, now. What is so fascinating about the coconut husk, you have a chart on your website talking about the material, the properties of this material. You compare it to various other cooler types, including plastic. And it appears, based on that chart, that coconut husk fiber is better at keeping things cool than just about any other material for longer. Because how many hours does the chart show? It's like six, seven hours, and ice has barely warmed up at all within this material. So. What is it about this material that is so excellent for keeping things cool?
0: Well, again, if you think about if you think about the, the research and development arm of of our company, which is which is nature, um, you know, nature has been doing. <laughs> you that a sticker? That's cool. <laughs> I don't know how to fit. It. That's a good T-shirt, though. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have used that that line before, That's I, sweet. I have to admit, um, but. You know, nature has been doing this kind of evolution, evolutionary tests for us for for millennia, um, because it is so important in nature to uh, be able to sit out there in the sun for long periods without uh, the insides of the coconut um, spoiling and and rotting, and so you know, nature has evolved this amazing material, coconut husk, which can can sit up there on the on the palm tree or it can sit on the ground after the, the coconut has fallen. Um, you know, coconuts, the way that they spread is they roll into the ocean and they drift for thousands of miles. And when they wash up on some distant beach, all that uh, material inside, which is really the germ of the plant, is still fresh and ready to sprout. And if you think about it, you know what is powering that kind of like longevity? That's you know staying fresh and not just spoiling in the in the hundred degree heat of the Philippines or Indonesia or the South Pacific. Uh, you know nature had to come up with this material that could insulate for long periods. And that is the that is the coconut husk, and so you know we didn't have to. We, we've we've done quite a bit of research, of course, uh, figuring out how to kind of unlock this value. But we didn't start from scratch. We started from something that was already um, evolved to do this job really well. And again, I'm I'm so bullish on on these kind of natural materials because if you think about all sorts of different. Uh, Use cases, all sorts of different um, objectives that you're you're looking for. Whether it's strength, whether it is um, water and permeability, something being waterproof, um, and so on and so forth. You know, it's tempting to to try to start in the lab and you know start from from molecules, uh, but you can also take a step back and just think to yourself, you know, where in nature is this already happening, and where might we kind of piggyback? on those natural materials to get this kind of of performance already. And so that was sort of the thought process that we went through in the Philippines. We're trying to keep this this fish fresh in the sun. Well, where are where is the sun already beating down, but nature has kind of won this battle. And so that's how we started thinking about the the coconut coconut husk.
1: That's so great. And things, there's so much, like you said about the plastics being used unnecessarily, there's so much of this unnecessary element. When I learned that a lot of countries in Southeast Asia, that they wrap their food, if you go to a a local, basically like a fast food restaurant, they wrap it in a banana leaf. And here we're using either a combination of plastic and paper. And you think, why not a banana leaf? It's just as good for that purpose. Do I really care what my food comes in as long as it works? If it serves the purpose of being a plate or keeping the liquid in? So it's great that there are other solutions like that that we can just use. Now, maybe the flip side of this is that is the reason there are so many coconuts because of the palm oil industry? Why are there so many, so much waste of coconuts in the Philippines and elsewhere?
0: Yeah, um, it is a a global commodity. Um, Most coconuts are produced for coconut oil but there's a range of of different uh, valuable coconut products that uh, the international sort of economy has 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 started demanding Um, coconut water is increasing in popularity every every year still Um, coconut milk is a popular ingredient and um, coconut plantations are not quite as as toxic uh, or potentially harmful as um, palm oil plantations and there's there's several reasons for that but one one reason is actually uh, coconut trees are, are much easier to intercrop with um, with other plants so you often see for example coffee plants growing um, in between the the coconut trees on these plantations so it's it's not quite so often a, a monocropped uh situation um it's also you know palm trees in general are uh, very resistant to or very strong in in typhoons and so um, there was already quite a quite a lot of uh, coconut trees uh, palm trees uh, in a lot of these uh, Asian countries already. Um, so you know there wasn't a lot of deforestation uh, that was related to to coconut trees. Um, but you know the fact of the matter is that uh, it is just this enormous global commodity and the way these commodity markets work is that they are super optimized for one very very specific crop one very specific output and in the case of coconuts it is kind of the the meat or the water of the coconut Mm. and if you think from the perspective of these kind of giant companies um, they just don't have the time or even the sort of in-house expertise or creativity to be thinking about you know we're producing all these coconuts uh and therefore we're producing all this byproduct. so is there anything we could be doing with everything else uh that gets left behind and the answer for for a lot of big companies for a lot of super specialized commodities markets is just sort of a, a big shrug uh we just need to optimize the one thing and continue to optimize for it
1: and what would they be doing then burning them sending them to landfills burning, burning them okay and probably not capturing any of that, just burning them, not capturing, not using energy or creating energy with it. A lot of that stuff is just—I
0: mean, it's it's possible, but for for a long, long time, it was just not worth it. Not not their problem. Nobody was telling them to work on that. Um, they uh, these these companies, uh, you know, had had other other things to focus on, and so. Um, this was waste. and uh, like like all of us all around the world, um, when you have waste, the only thing you want to do is is get rid of it as quickly as possible and and that means uh, by and large, burning it. There are, you know, a little bit of small scale um, producers that use it as as fuel. It's not great fuel. There's not a ton of heat content in the in the material. There's some other very marginal things that uh, happens with, With some of these coconut husks, but by and large, they
1: are thrown away and burned as as waste. Wow. So I assume that the genesis of this idea came about at Stanford. At what point did you realize that you had a business here that you could pursue and take things outside of the university and start going on your own? (laughs) Um, it happened,
0: it happened pretty, pretty slowly, pretty gradually. And, and all of a sudden we, we looked around and realized that we had graduated, uh, a year and a half ago and, um, and we're still working on this thing and, you know, probably it's time to, to, to turn this into a, a sustainable enterprise. Um, but yeah, I think we basically the, the long and short of it is that we were producing some prototypes when we were in school Um, we felt like there was a lot of excitement um, among the communities, among the users, also among, you know, our advisors and uh, a lot of external people. We were just getting a lot of positive feedback and we were having a lot of fun in the process, which is not hard to do when you are um, tinkering on coconut farms and in, in fishing villages in, in the Philippines. Um, And so you know we just simply couldn't couldn't really ever walk away from it we we were always getting just enough uh kind of positive signals to to keep going to and and there was always you know the next the next product the next idea that we were working on and so you know we we just felt like we we had started too much and we were too invested in this thing and we had too many uh really amazing partners on the ground that uh, you know, we're, we're basically counting on us to, to continue working on this and to continue helping them uh, sort of unlock all of this value. And so it was sort of a, a no-brainer. Um, it was such a no-brainer that I can't even identify the moment when we decided to, to go all in because from the very early days, um, it felt like more than just a, a student project to us. Did you move to the Philippines? And if so, when? Yeah, I've spent uh, the the majority of of my life uh, for the last four years in in Southeast Asia, and, um, and a, a few uh, villages and uh, sort of factory towns in Southeast Asia in in particular. Um, mostly, most of that time was in the Philippines, but these days we're also looking at um, Vietnam uh, and Thailand. So I I get to travel around quite a bit. Again, this is not a hardship post at all. It's been it's been a, a very, very fun um, and fulfilling adventure so far.
1: So you enjoy it. You enjoy being outside the States. Are you having a good time? Do you want to move back or do you think you're going to be there for the for a long time? Um, you know, I, I
0: I really love Southeast Asia. I, I love our our friends and partners in the Philippines, I do have a enormous amount of respect for both our our employees in in the region and the partners that we have in the region, and you know one thing I've learned from from working and living all over the world, uh, even before uh, the days of Fortuna, is that as much as I enjoy working and living uh, outside of the U.S., um, I'm never going to be the leading expert i'm never going to be the best person to to scale you know some sort of local uh you know hyper local supply chain in the philippines um or or thailand or, or vietnam i love being the spark and i love you know starting things and kind of unlocking all the the brilliance um and resourcefulness that is already in these places but there is a little piece of me in, in the back of my mind that thinks you know the the place that even after all this time the place that I understand the best you know my comparative advantage is being able to um to really scale this thing um in a place like like the US and so I think sooner or later um I will I will be, be back in the US and the work in Southeast Asia will really be driven forward by um, our employees and partners in Southeast Asia that are are so good at navigating and driving forward all those all those things on the ground but for now it's it's really fun to be able to to split my time
1: that's great yep you go back to seattle and soon your coconut days will be over that's the end of that not a lot of (laughs) not a lot of coconuts in seattle sadly but your um, coffee intake will go up though so that's (laughs) that's important um yeah that's that's such a a great and profound thing so travel i've often theorized that travel is a big component of coming to new realizations like this would you agree with that to what degree is travel responsible for you expanding your own horizons do you think that you could have come up with an idea as cool or as novel if you had never traveled if you just stayed where you were
0: no um yeah I mean travel for me is uh is kind of the it's basically what I what I live for um I think all of the the most profound um, learnings that that I've had over the course of my life are basically things that i I noticed being done um, as second nature when when I travel. So basically just um, learning from from the people and the places that I have been able to visit and live with over over many years at this point, um, these are the these are the most important parts of of my life. Um, and yeah, I, I, I don't think I would be the person I am or have the insights that I do. If I had just, uh, spent my, spent my days sort of tinkering in a lab, uh, by myself or with colleagues who had the exact same background that, that I do, I do, you know, really appreciate all the expertise that you can, that you can find by, by that sort of rigorous head down study as well. But, um, yeah, that, that life, uh, I think it's, it's pretty clear, <laughs> um, is, is, is not for me. Um, so yeah, I will, I will continue not just traveling, but really, really living in, in other places for, for all my life, I think, because, um, I just think there is, there's so much, um, amazing insights and amazing people and connections that can be made around the world. And, uh, yeah. And, and I just love kind of finding those, those moments and those people
1: it's so true and it it, there's something that magical that happens when you spend an extended period of time somewhere else when you go on a vacation not a lot really rubs off on you i think but when you stay for months or years something magical happens you change in a fundamental way that's the way i've always felt
0: i i totally agree um yeah i've i've developed a, a small allergy to to taking kind of like uh short short vacations places the the thing that i'm usually left with is just uh curiosity to to go back and spend much more time there and try to try to understand things at at some sort of deeper level because um yeah as as much as i love kind of like seeing a beautiful vista or um, shaking hands with a really interesting person um all the all the really profound uh Moments of my life have come when I have moved somewhere and started to put down roots and build a community. Whether it was in Mumbai, India, or uh, Cebu, Philippines, or East Timor, um, these are these are the places and communities that I've I've gotten to know. And it was kind of a slow process to really um, to really learn about a place. And you know, I was still after after those months or years, I'm just scratching the surface, but um, yeah, I think it does take take a bit of time uh, to to do that.
1: And I'm guessing some of the things that you learned are people are all fundamentally different. There is an us and there is a them, and the us is very <laughs> different from the them, and the us must hate the them, right? We're we're fundamentally different, obviously, <laughs> right? Obviously,
0: obviously, um, yeah. I i, I I wish I could come up with anything except for cliches, uh, which which I know that you're you're suggesting here. Um, but I I actually I wouldn't say it's like my my insights have been as as simple as you know we're all essentially the the same. Um, I think like it's 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 even deeper than that, which is that um, the the diversity of backgrounds and of expertise around the world. Um, Really holds within it so much kind of insight and resourcefulness and and differences in terms of uh, the way that people see the world, the way that people s- uh, develop solutions to problems, and so my my favorite thing is just learning about um, something that someone does in some some other place that is so obvious to them and. S- something that I had never thought of before. And so those are the those are the kind of nuggets that that I really love to tease out. And I think I at least hope that's that's a little bit more interesting than than just saying that we're all fundamentally uh, (laughs) the same, even though you know, that's, that's obviously something that I think about all the time, too. Yeah,
1: yeah, I lived for an extended period of time in Europe. So I was there for nine years. That was my taste. My wife is Dutch. And Obvious things to them. When you buy beer, you buy it in a crate of glass bottles. When you're done, you return the empty bottles and the crate, and you get money back, and those bottles are refilled with new beer. How simple is that? It's the easiest thing in the world for them, and here in the U.S. we say, nope, garbage, all of it, start over. Did we really have to do that? No. But... And single-use plastics in general, shampoo, that's stuff that I'm always thinking about how to get away from. Just shampoos, soaps, all these things in your bathroom, in your kitchen, single-use plastics everywhere. Does it need to be that way? Do we need to store all of these things with water? These are questions that I ask myself all the time. Or could we have a powder form and not ship water around? Big questions from this show. But I agree (laughs) that, that people around the world, they have interesting solutions and their lives are different. So they'll do different things. I think that is a very profound insight. That's much deeper than my idiotic insight of we're all fundamentally the same and we're all basically good. Um, So two companies now. You've got the the cooler that you sell. So nutshell coolers are the Kickstarter, the 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 crowdfunding backed consumer product. It's just a cooler that works way better. And then you've got a business side. Can you tell us a little bit about the two different arms? Fortuna Cools Nutshell Coolers and how that works
0: yeah absolutely um so we we developed this model because we were kind of heads down on this packaging product in Southeast Asia we had you know really been grinding on on making the best packaging the best alternative to styrofoam coolers for cold chains for food transport for for a couple of years and we were having some success. Uh, we were also learning much more about the business of packaging, and the business of logistics and cold chains. Cold chains are just, you know, keeping uh, keeping perishables fresh over long distances. And the important insight about packaging is that packaging is all about volume. So there's there's no margins uh, or very little margins in packaging, and the name of the game is how many millions of whatever you're making can you make so that the those two pennies that you you profit each one um, add up to, to some big number. And that is another reason why plastics are, are so popular, is that um, there's huge barriers to entry for, for anyone looking to disrupt uh, that kind of enormous industry in the very cutthroat, cost competitive world of packaging. And we were grappling with this already on the packaging side. How do we, how do we grow? How do we scale? Um, How much external capital do we need to be able to compete um, on volume with, uh, with sort of these, these incumbent products. And this was a a big challenge for us. And then COVID hit. (laughs) And so, um, you know, I, was not the only one my business our business was not the only one to be uh seriously impacted but also to start thinking very differently about about the business and so uh a lot of our work in southeast asia was was put on on hold um while the region really grappled with uh how to respond to this this crisis and it also gave us some opportunity to uh to to kind of Think much more broadly about the materials and about popularizing some of the insights and developments that we have been making in the Philippines, and um, you know, developing a consumer product uh, that you know looked a lot like the Fortuna coconut cooler that we had been building, but would be you know much more accessible to the everyday person. Um, we had been hearing this this request for for years since like the very first prototype that we made you know, random people uh around the world were asking if they could just buy one to to sort of take to the beach or to take to the um to the mountains, um, show their friends and kind of be be an advocate for for the impact as well as the beneficiaries of of this really uh interesting cool material that that we had been working on. And so, you know, COVID was like it was for so many people, it was uh this kind of like opportunity to um to rethink things and and launch something new and so today uh you know the the product that we developed out of this sort of rethinking process the nutshell cooler is you know this this product uh for for individuals um it's it's a great uh way to kind of like put your put your money where where your values are it has a, a super good um uh, impact in Southeast Asia and around the world. It has the exact same environmental benefits in terms of switching um, one of your products from, from plastics to to natural fibers. It's also just a really nice uh, product. It, it works super well and, and folds up um, in people's closets, just as our original uh, coolers folded up uh, in these small boats for fishermen so that they would have space um, today today. We sell the nutshell coolers to a lot of people who are space constrained in in Brooklyn or in uh, Portland, and 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 uh, appreciate the exact same designs that that we had originally uh, worked on with uh, with fishermen. And most interestingly, I think it's it's an, it's a cool model because um, it is sort of the reverse uh, problem. So packaging is this uh, high volume, low margin uh, product, consumer products are higher, higher margin, much lower volume. And so they are these very natural complements to each other. And it is a really um, cool business way to make it through these, these early years to scale um, in sort of a, in, in, in kind of like a natural way um, and not get just totally crushed by the incumbents and also to build this early community of people that believe in what we're doing and are excited to help us um, develop this material and, and this product, build this community around the world and kind of go up with this, go on this journey uh, alongside us. And so that's, that's kind of the, the, the point of the nutshell cooler, even as we continue working on the the packaging in Asia, they are kind of like complements to each other today.
1: I get it. It's like NASA goes to space and I get freeze dried ice cream. Win, win. <laughs> there you go. That's, win-win that's right everybody wins that's great yeah yeah so, yeah exactly obviously these coolers are not going to be floating around in the pacific ocean for a thousand years never breaking down however i'm sure they don't fall apart within the first week either what is the shelf life of these types of products both on the commercial side and on the consumer side yeah
0: we we like to we like to say that our products are made to last years or decades, just not millennia. Um, and <laughs> we do, we do, uh, definitely prioritize durability. Um, you know, the, the Achilles heel for a lot of these so-called sustainable products has, or in the early days, um, the knock against them was that sure they were made with, with organic materials or something, but they don't work nearly as well. And, you know, they fall apart and you have to replace them more often. And aside from being a worse customer experience, you know, how sustainable is a product really if you constantly have to go out and, and buy a new one? Um, and so we were super aware of that. And, um, you know, the materials that we're starting with are, again, naturally have a lot of durability uh, baked into them. And then in our processing, we really prioritized making sure that um, although we, we don't compromise the, the inherent biodegradability of the product, we really put an emphasis on durability and performance over time. And so today our, our packaging products last for, for a couple of years. Um, our consumer product will last considerably longer than that it should it should really last a lifetime but it will at least uh, last you know several years of good hard use um at the beach or, or on the the hiking trail or what have you so um yeah again we're we're sort of the the beneficiaries of of an amazing amazingly strong um waterproof and uh, and antimicrobial fiber and so that's kind of the the foundation that we're building from, and we have we have made sure that we're going to develop a great experience both for our business customers and our um, individual uh, customers, uh, so that there's not any kind of like compromise or trade-off when it comes to choosing um, a natural fiber product like ours.
1: Nice. And if I put some seeds inside of it and set it adrift in the ocean, it'll wash ashore thousands of miles away and still be good to go. It certainly will. If you can, yeah, if you can um, protect, yeah, if you can, if you can keep it nice
0: and, and tightly closed, um, yeah, you can, you can refashion a, a little coconut
1: of your own. That would be amazing. Come full circle on it. Uh, <laughs> that's so cool. Obviously everything about this is is amazing. I think it's a great, great concept. Great story. Now that you've seen a little bit into the future of what this could become are there any other products or verticals that you think there might be an impact here that you might be able to expand into anything else that has shown up on the horizon that maybe didn't see at the beginning the you know second most
0: fun part of my job aside from getting to work with all these uh farmers and and amazing partners that we have in our existing supply chains is the volume and level of excitement that we encounter from all over the place when we start telling our story. And so these days, like every single day, we get some idea, some some passionate person contacts us who's in Mexico and has some pineapple plantation and says, oh, you know, we have all this pineapple leaf waste or this agave waste, as as someone was telling me, uh, just, just yesterday, um, could we use it for, uh, for, for construction material? (laughs) Of course, I'm not, I'm not necessarily the expert in, in all of these different products, but I have learned that the most important thing in these early days is to, is to just provide that kind of sounding board, that sort of like excitement and, and kind of like unlock other people's creativity and resourcefulness. So the answer to your question is, we are looking at a couple of particular um, new products for for Fortuna. Um, we're looking at larger scale industrial insulation, um, even some some kind of construction insulation. But we're st- we're trying to stay pretty focused on on kind of our core because even in the in the realm of of coolers and cold chains. Um, these are huge markets and we're just scratching the surface, um, with our sort of early, uh, early products of, of what we can do here. And at the same time, um, we are just hearing so many ideas from, from fellow entrepreneurs or, um, you know, agricultural producers for what they can do with all of their natural fiber waste. And my general answer to all of these people is it's. Almost certainly possible. It's going to take a little bit of work and creativity. And, um, you know, Fortuna might not be the plug and play solution for, for everything, but at the very least, we are thrilled to kind of have those conversations. Um, and if nothing else, to be to be a bit of inspiration that it is possible, if not provide all the all the scientific and manufacturing expertise to to unlock it. But we are looking at at some different industrial applications and construction applications right now.
1: Very cool. So we've established that Fortuna cools. Does Fortuna heat, or retain heat? It does. Insulation
0: is 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 uh, perfectly scalable in both directions. It just blocks the the heat transfer from one side of an object to the other. So um, so we can keep uh, takeout pizza hot just as well as we can keep uh, ice cream frozen uh, when it's when it's on its way to to your door, Ross.
1: Can it keep a podcast studio cool in the middle of the summer in Glendale when go. it's ninety not, degrees? Ross, you're not you're not the first, uh, and in fact, uh,
0: we we have explored with with some people um, soundproofing as well. So um, yeah, Love it's, that. it's it's possible for sure.
1: <laughs> All right, I will stay focused. That sounds so cool. Possibilities are endless. So on a scale from one to ten, one is I absolutely hate my life today 10 is I have the best <laughs> life I can possibly imagine where would you rate yourself right now Wow what a question <laughs> um, life is good for for me right
0: now uh, I'm I'm super lucky to be working with um, the best basically the best team I, I could possibly imagine and so it's it's um you know the purpose of the company that you know, puts me at a, a baseline kind of like eight every day. And then the 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 thing that takes me to, to a nine or a 10 on, on any given day is is getting to work with um some of the most inspiring and and brilliant people uh, imaginable. The other plug, just circling back to why social entrepreneurship um from from about 45 minutes ago, sure. it attracts it attracts and retains the best people in the world, I'm, I'm sure of that. Um, and so yeah, I'd say I'd say depending on on which uh, people I get to talk to, whether it's our our farmers, our 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 brilliant people in the factory, or my my co-founder um, or our operations
1: director, um, that that puts me at a nine or a ten uh, pretty much day in day out. I couldn't agree more. And on that note, I'm very grateful that you, a brilliant person, have agreed to talk to me and share your ideas. I think it's profoundly inspiring and I really look forward to seeing what you come up with next. I love everything about it. So here's one more supporter. Not that you need one per se, but I'm encouraging you here because we need more people like you doing exactly this. So I think it's awesome. So again, really thank you for taking the time to sit with me today and, and share your story.
0: Thank you, Russ. This was this was a lot of fun. Uh, thanks for the platform and and if if anyone is is curious to learn more, uh, as I said, I'm always happy to
1: to have a, a conversation at, at the very least. And where can they support you or either donate or are you still crowdfunding at all or is that part over? Uh, we're not crowdfunding,
0: but we will be okay. uh, we will be on sale in the U.S. and and around the world this summer. So um, nutshellcoolers.com if you're excited about the consumer product. Um, and you can, you can reach me on, on all the, all the regular social media platforms. Um, and my, my email address is David at Fortuna Cools, if anyone wants to get in touch directly. So, uh, yeah, Nutshell Coolers is, is probably the, the main avenue that, that your listeners could, could check out in the near future. Um, but yeah, look me up anywhere.
1: Awesome. Sounds great, David. And one last thing before we wrap it up, what is the word of the day?
0: The word of the day. Um, it's got to be coconuts. Did I get it right?
1: <laughs> sure. Great. It's your word. The word of the day is coconuts. And with that, the official podcast is over. Over. over.